welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Maybelle Romero, Associate Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And today we have Bernice Espinosa joining us, who is a poet, activist, and advocate. And I am so excited to have her here. Thank you so much for joining us, Bernice. Thank you for having me. I had the privilege of going to law school with you um, back in the day from 2003 to 2006 um, at UC Berkeley. And even back when I knew you then, um, you're very dedicated to social justice, very dedicated to activism and advocacy um, for everyone who might, um, you know, be facing um, sort of systemic racism, systemic sexism and the like. Um, And, you know, it was just something that I really admired. I know that your activism has continued since then. So could you tell us just a bit more about your background and how you decided to get involved in the law and really what your practice has looked like since then? Sure. Um, The first time I was ever involved in any kind of protest or demonstration was actually in third grade when my teacher was getting a pink slip and uh, started protesting then. I also being the first generation American and seeing how my mom was being treated differently because of her accent and being tested pretty regularly to see if I I was actually told by the gifted and talented education program that I didn't have a good enough grasp on the English language um, to be in Kate. So that was, that was interesting. So I became involved in student body politics since fifth grade and went on through middle school and became the first Latina uh, student body president of my high school and actually went on a trip to to Washington, D.C. to speak on C-SPAN about the state of our, our nation's youth and particularly um, the lack of counselors because every year from the time I was in eighth grade till I graduated, somebody in my class died either by suicide or some other really horrible way. And we had no educational counselors or emotional care support. And so um, I also grew up during the time of Columbine. So um, these issues have always been really present. I grew up in Livermore, California from the time I was eight to 18, uh, which at the time was 80% white. And so Having to be aware of my my color was something that was not something that I I asked. It was pushed upon me, and I was either whitewashed or not not white enough. And um, having to be the mediator between my culture, my communities, um, and also survive, you know, just not to be one of the statistics. So advocating for for counselors and access for different things in youth, and that's actually what I thought I was going to do um, was to be a civil rights lawyer. I didn't know what that was until eighth grade when Ms. Montgomery taught us the preamble through Schoolhouse Rock. And I asked her, why do we need to know this stuff? And she told me, well, who knows? You might want to be a civil rights lawyer sometime. And then we learned about the civil rights movement. And 
I said, yeah, that's definitely what I want to do. Um, I went to UC Berkeley undergrad. I was very active there. And I worked at a middle school with English language learners. And so I saw also the disparities of education and what people were had access to in order to get into um, higher education. And I thought I was going to do civil rights law within education and employment. But life had an interesting change. And I ended up <laughs> um, my third year in law school with uh, a fellowship project, but no sponsoring group. And not apparently, if you say that you don't want to work at a law firm, because you know, the only reason you went there was to go ahead and pay off your law school debt. Partners don't really like that when it's inside of a deposition. Um, no, they don't. <laughs> as you know, our class yeah. sued the university for doubling our tuition between our first and second year. And then again, our third year. And I was deposed as a class member um, that had it not been for the doubling of my tuition, I would not have worked at a law firm. And that, mm -hmm. that closed some doors. <laughs> um, yeah, I could see how that could happen maybe, huh? <laughs> oh, wow. But I'm thankful um, because at my third, my 3L year, there was a public interest, public sector day. And I was applying to anything that was social justice, renters' rights, um, Jewish rights. I'm not Jewish, but, you know, like anything that fights oppression, I'm, I was ready for. And I saw a bunch of public defender positions that were open for law clerks. And I called up my mentor, Alegria de la Cruz, and I said, hey, you know, should I, should I apply to this? And she asked me, don't you want to be a civil rights lawyer for underrepresented communities of color? Yeah. Who gets arrested? And what's the, mm. what's the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth amendment? Like civil rights. And I also told her that I was afraid to apply because I hadn't focused my law school time on, on criminal law. And I was afraid that I would be a disservice, especially since I really do not like the prison industrial complex. And I also, there is the reputation that public defenders become jaded. And so she told me the fact that you're worrying about whether or not you're going to be a disservice to your clients before you even apply to a job means that you'll never allow yourself to be. She also reminded me that I had taken criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, evidence advocacy, and done some moot court stuff in evidence advocacy and explained whether I wanted to realize it or not, I, I was prepared. And the, the prison industrial complex is awful, but I have the ability to make some change for the individuals that I take care of or work for, um, I, I really work for, because it's not my job to take care, but to inform and, and, and make sure that I zealously represent people in, in the system. So um, that's how it started. And then this miraculous, crazy thing happened 
in 2010, where the Supreme Court said, hey, criminal defense lawyer, you need to let your non-U.S. citizen clients know how their immigration status is going to be affected while they have a pending criminal case. And it was like my two worlds collided and I ended up becoming an expert in what we know as CRIM-M or a Padilla attorney. And I have been mm-hmm. doing that. Um, I did started that in 2012 for 14 months in Riverside County. And then um, was the Padilla attorney in Sonoma County for four and a half years until July 1st of 2020, when I have now left the public defender's office to come work for VIDAS, which stands for the Vital Immigrant Defense and Advocacy Services. And I am a removal defense attorney. Um, While I was a public defender, it happens to be that now Alegria is one of the chief county councils uh, was, she's now an equity officer for the county of Sonoma. But we realized that during 2017, there was a lack of representation in, um, in immigration court. They do not have a Gideon right. And so we created a fund called the Secure Families Fund, where People who are Sonoma County residents, if they find themselves in removal proceedings, can receive a free attorney. And I am now that attorney. That's an incredible, incredible position to be in. And I'm really glad to hear that that sort of funding is happening um, where you're at, because this isn't something that's widespread, is it? Um you know, I, I think even until recently, like you were mentioning, um, with the Padilla versus Kentucky decision in 2010, um, a lot of, you know, criminal practitioners and a lot of courts didn't really understand how um, intimately connected um, criminal law and immigration issues happen to be. Um, so um, I'm glad to hear that that's something that you are able to help people out with. I know that from what I've seen, even with regard to coverage in the news and everything, that your community values very much these services that you are able to provide to people. And I know that these issues are really close to your heart as well. Um, even beyond the work in, that you do in your you know, sort of quote unquote day job, I know that a lot of these sorts of experiences, helping people, representing them, especially at this intersection of um, criminal law and immigration law, um, really inspires a lot of um, a, a lot of writing and a lot of art that you do as well. And that's something that I also wanted to highlight during this um, interview as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, specifically your poetry that you, you do in connection to um, the work that you specialize in? Well, one thing I didn't mention about my background, I am first generation American, but my mother and father are from, my mother's from Juarez and my Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. And my dad was born in El Paso, Texas. And so was I, but my father was raised in Juarez until he was nine. So the border has very much been intimately part of my life um, as my family still, we are the only family that's outside of the border with the exception of a cousin that lives in Virginia. Um, So these issues have always been something that is important. And um, 
at Gloria Alcedua, I didn't really know about until I was in college, but I realized like I am a borderland. I'm, I'm constantly told you're not from here. You're not from there. You're too much this, you're too much that your accent's too strong. And so um, I started writing poetry about the age of 11, but a lot of my poetry has to do with my identity and my politics. And um, unfortunately, it <laughs> has inspired, um, the, the current political climate has inspired more poems, but I'd like to share with you actually a poem that explains why I became a public defender. And um, it also has to do with my faith. And so there's a scripture in the Bible in Mark 2, 15 through 17, where it talks about how Jesus was at the house of Levi. And these Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors and asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus responded to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So this poem's called Mr. Brown. Chivalry's dead. And, 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 and I'm here because I love my wife. I, I love her. But, but, but when she came with that woman, that woman pushed out a table into me. I didn't hit her. I, I was home. Did, did, did you know about the time continuum? I, I'll have to do it for chivalry. And the laboratory's home. I'm a scientist, but I'm not a lawyer. What, what about the cats? Are the cats okay? I can't go home. I can't ever see my, 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 my wife. Where am I going to live? She's going to lose the mobile home. She can't take care of it. She can't take care of anything. Uh, I've been all awake all night because of, because because there's there are bugs in my hair and and, and 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 I can't get them out because they place me like an animal. My cuffs are crossing and and, and I can't get them out. Well, will, will you shake the bugs out of my hair? Sitting in an orange jumpsuit with your hair disheveled. And covering your eyes, I reach over and pull your bangs away. I run my hands through your dirty gray and white hair. You look at me and wonder if you can go home. Mr. Brown, they're not going to let you go home, but I will help you out. I'll get you a place to live. I'll get you to your probation officer. I'll get your medications. Yeah, I know you're schizophrenic and bipolar, but I'll help. Mrs. Espinosa, when I get out of here, will you will you will you have a sprite and a hamburger with me? I, I I'd like that. When I see Mr. Brown, when I see Mr. Stevens, when I see Miss Greer, when I see Miss Thompson, when I see them, when I see them sitting in a jury box in an orange jumpsuit or a blue jumpsuit waiting for me to tell them why they are in court, what to expect, is there any hope? I see you, Lord. I see myself in their seat, Lord. I see how I should be shackled up for each time I say a four-letter word, each time I stayed with my ex-boyfriend, each time I went and enjoyed a couple of Tokyo teas just a bit too much, each time I came into your house thinking about how I was going to leave and commit my next favorite sin. I know I'm saved. I know better. I know I shouldn't. I know I'm wrong. 
but you still shake the bugs out of my dirty hair and show me love, love I never deserved. You sit with me and eat at my table because I'm sick, just like Mr. Brown. Oh, thank you. And I feel like I've known a lot of public defenders when I sat down with them and talked with them about how they are able to show up to work every day and how they're able to dedicate themselves to their jobs and to their clients day after day with little funding and with little help from, um, you know, the courts or even um, having to work against sort of negative public opinion of what they do. Um, I know that a lot of them have told me that their faith really plays a big part in what they do. So, um, you know, you, you said so much about that, even in just that poem that you shared with us, but could you speak a little bit more as to how your faith motivates you to do what you do and to help the people that you do? Well, I believe in social justice, Jesus. I mean, Jesus stood up for women when they were going to get stoned. Jesus stood up for a woman who was for racial bias against Samaritans and made sure that he befriended and welcomed them. And Jesus saw that people were were cheating and conniving and threw over tables. Um, that's that's the Jesus I believe in. And Jesus was convicted and sentenced to the death penalty for a crime he didn't commit, and was next to those who were tax collectors and considered thieves and to sex workers. And if they're good enough for Jesus, they're sure as hell good enough for me. And so I think that it's part of my faith to, if I'm to be an example of Jesus, that I need to live out those things that Jesus did. And he broke the law doing it. So (laughs) like feeding people on the Sabbath. Um, And and so I'm thankful that I, I have the ability to, to listen to folks and see them as human beings and not just their circumstance. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, hey, how can you represent someone when they're guilty? And I explain, look, I'm a check in the balance If the cops did everything that they were supposed to, and if the DA filed appropriately, and if the DA offered an appropriate sentence, then I'd be advising my clients as to, hey, you know what, this is appropriate. Um, But oftentimes that's not the case. There are a heck of a lot more people who have pled guilty to something that they did not do because the risk of going to trial was too high. There, then there are people who got off from something they allegedly did. So um, I, I adamantly believe that the death penalty is wrong, that we have, we have sent way too many mentally ill people, way too many people that uh, were identified by eyewitnesses. And we know that eyewitnesses have other biases, and also the way that it's implemented, again, coming from Riverside County, which is the death penalty county uh, county of, of California, at any given point in time, 
there were 24 cases where people were 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 being prosecuted for the death penalty and the vast majority are people of color and so you have to look at that doesn't make sense how can death row be 50% latinx and 40% black when california doesn't even have 50% Latinx and way less African-American Black community members. And how is it that there's only, that only leaves 10% of anything else that makes no sense? So um, that's, that's why I do the work I do. And also specifically with the criminal immigration portions, I have the ability to look at these laws and talk at a county level about, hey, let's let's follow the law. Let's see what the law says here in California that you cannot contact ICE unless there are certain prior convictions. The law says that you can't ask about someone's status. The law says you can't put out their immigration status in an open court. I mean, those are things that... Um, I'm very, very, very lucky that I get to not only teach my colleagues and community members, but I had the opportunity to give trainings in the jail um, to the lieutenants and sergeants who work with me in county council and probation. And those are things that I, I really believe. Um, I, don't get me wrong. I swear like a sailor. I'm sorry, mom and dad. Um, I, I go to church every Sunday, but I believe, quite frankly, that my faith and allows for that to happen. Like, I do believe that this is my calling. This is what God has put me on this earth to do. That's lovely. Um, what I'm hoping, at least for maybe the next 10 minutes or so, is um, maybe if you could share some more of your poems um, with us. I know that you have a few um, really amazing untitled pieces. And um, if I could make a request that we could end with um, La Nueva Llorona, um, and then we'll close it out from there. That'd be great. So um, because this is a podcast for legal scholars, you'll enjoy that this is actually part of my Romero motion. A Romero motion is to strike a prior strike in California. And this is actually my statement of facts. <laughs> they did not get filed with the court because we ended up having a conflict of interest since we um, represented the person alleged in an associated matter. Um, so, but my my client did get to keep this um, as as his poem. So, this one's called Statement of Facts. Gotta protect the women, gotta protect the women because I wasn't able to protect Joanna. Meth-filled veins make me bring up what I try to forget. I try to forget when I was four, the cups of beer went missing from the res baseball game straight into my stomach. I was drunk, just like grandpa. I was only four. When I was six, 
Dad left to be with his new real family, not Tony, Joanna, Joey, mom, me. Left to fend for myself, left the res with a seventh grade education because Hemet was my new home, not the land of milk and honey, but instead the land of weed and crystal and mom's veins were swimming in it. And we followed in her footsteps, Tony, Joanna, Joey, me. So at 13, it became wake up, get high, sleep, repeat. And at 14, I got jumped into my new real family, shaking caps and it became wake up, get high with the homies, get arrested locked up repeat and my youth was gone in defeat but I still tried to forget and weed left me with regret so at 18 I needed a new fix one that would wipe away my memories so my hope came in the shape of a white shard of magic stone a gem a crystal monthly pachanga stipend became the weekly eight ball of speed to feed my need 2002 got my strikes for having a gun left me shaken so I left the shaking cats tried to forget tried to escape at my uncle's in Tecate escape from the pool of my friend and me dependency of magical stone it worked for a bit until my prison commitment 2007 and it became wake up get high go to rehab for a week get arrested locked up repeat stepped into rehab so mom wouldn't be mad but I wasn't ready I still wanted to forget 31 walked into rehab a week later walked out got picked up on a violation locked up and then Joanna was gone murdered November 2013 and I couldn't protect the woman I couldn't protect my sister but on June 12th 2014 gotta protect the women gotta protect the women Go inside the car dealership, get the duffel bags, get the car, go to Vegas. I'm a cyborg here to protect the women. And that man was trying to stop me. So I swung at him, but I didn't hurt him. I just got to protect the women. Wow. Thank you. And that was a, your, the statement of facts that, you know, that you had actually drafted for the Romero motion. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Unfortunately, um, my office represented the person alleged of murdering Joanna. So we had, we could not go forward with the motion. Um, there, if a person is in, um, in custody, they sit in these sort of benches. And I, I told them I had wrote the motion and that I was going to file it, but I found out that morning that I couldn't. And so I read it to him. And my client said, that sounds like a rap. And then as we kept going through, he's like, you're crazy. <laughs> and at the end, one of the people next to him said, yo, can I have a copy of that? And my client grabbed my motion and said, nah, this is my poem. Wow. That's amazing. So. And the thing about it is that we were the same age. And. We would have been friends had I grown up in the same place, you know? So we've got another three minutes. And, you know, before we um, get into your next piece here, um, I know that a lot of people might be listening who have no background or understanding as to um, the reference that, you know, to La Llorona or who that might be. So could you perhaps... um, preface your next poem with, you know, maybe explaining who this figure is in sort of um, Latin American mythology for everyone. Sure. As I mentioned, I grew up, um, my family on the border uh, where the Rio Grande is. So for me, um, La Llorona appears at the Rio Grande, but uh, there's many 
different permutations of the story. In essence, this woman um, had a, a, a lover and a partner who who either left her for someone else or there was some sort of battle where he left because of her children. And in her, in her grief and distraught, drowns her children. And then she realizes what she does, did. And so she comes to the river crying, asking, where are my children? Where are my children? And so this is a very typical Latin American ghost story. Um, but I wrote this poem as a result of the separation of parents at the border currently, especially refugees from Central America who have been in tent cities in Juarez and who cross over and then are, are separated from their children and it is in my first language, which is Spanglish. So here we go. La Nueva Llorona. Ya no podemos vivir aquí. Los pandilleros son los que mandan. So like the Quetzal, it is time to fly north con mis hijos de siete y ocho. Because... I don't want them to end up in a gang or killed because they refused like their tío did. So I packed up our backpacks and we headed north, caminando por días y por casi un mes. Con poco dinero, llegamos al río y nos pasaron los coyotes. When we thought we were finally free, free from the fear, violence, torture, the screams and the tears. Till... They tore me apart, the mis hijos. They caged my boys, they caged me. They imprisoned me, they deported me. I do not know where they are. No sé dónde están mis hijos. No sé si están vivos. If they fell into the hands of the shelter workers who only give them one sandwich a day, or los soldados, the ones who touch them, not with my loving hands, but to shut them up or to get their sick joy. Entonces, lloro, lloro al lado del río, que no puedo pasar. ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Mis hijos. ¿Qué hice? ¿Qué hice a mis hijos? Mis hijos. Oh, gosh. The end always gets me. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, and I cannot imagine just the pain and anguish that parents and other family members must go through every day when these sorts of family separations happen. And I appreciate you being able to at least snap a picture of what that must be like for those of us who aren't going through that or those of us who don't see that every day. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. And I think part of the biggest issue is calling immigration court civil. It's anything but. No. It is a, a, a penalty, a punishment. And um, if, the, if I can change anything in this world, it will be to have a Gideon right for those who are in, in immigration proceedings.
Well, thank you so much for sharing that and sharing just so much about your, your background and these amazing, you know, pieces of spoken word poetry. They are very moving. They're very motivating. And I really hope that those who are listening today or, you know, right now are encouraged to um, pitch in and do something about this rather uncivil system, as you were really astutely putting it. So thank you, um, Bernice Espinosa, poet, activist, advocate. And I will put a shameless plug that you can personally help the Sonoma County Secures Family Fund. I can find that online then, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I'll make sure to put in a link in like the liner notes when this gets posted up on the website. (laughs) Donate everyone. But yes, Bernice Espinoza, poet, activist, advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh.